Welcome to Bonnet to Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I am your host, Lauren Burke. And I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And this week, we are kicking off our Agnes Gray read-along and mini-season. So 2020 marks the bicentenary of Anne's birth, Just why I always remember Anne's birth, 2020, 1820. <laughs> Very, it's easy. easy. I can't remember when yeah. I can't remember when any of the rest of them are born, but it's Anne. I can remember anyway. Twenty twenty marks the bicentenary of Anne's birth on the seventeenth of January, eighteen twenty. It also marks the end of a five-year series of events at the Bronte Parsonage celebrating the bicentenaries of the births of each of the Bronte children and the bicentenary of Patrick Bronte changing the course of his family's life by accepting his role as parson at uh in howard <laughs> in in at in, in at yeah and i think what feels really apt for me is we like close out the bicentenaries because although we haven't done like a ton of programming on them we went to the parsonage during you know like the show started while this was going on so there were yeah. bicentenary celebrations each time we've been to the parsonage we've done mm-hmm read-alongs um and I know that Agnes Grey is a book that you've specifically been talking about since we started the show you Mm -hmm. always recommend it and you always always bring it up and so yeah to end that kind of five-year bicentenary celebration on this just feels it feels right and also she's my favorite so oh yeah I'm glad we're not finishing on Charlotte The Gateway Bronte, as we like to call Anne. Um, Yeah, longtime listeners to the show will know that, um, of course, I'm obsessed with the Brontes, but also I am obsessed with stories that deal with like work, right? So the process, career development, workplace politics. I mean, you know, I read Ask a Manager for fun. Um, If I were to go back to school, I might write some sort of dissertation on like, Victorian era women's work and how that mirrors the millennial workplace. I don't know. That's just like something that I think about and would love to write about. Um, And I think that Agnes Gray is like the perfect vehicle for those kinds of discussions. So I'm really excited about this. I really like books about kissing. (laughs) Yeah. The kissing in Jane Eyre was great. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I feel stupid. Um, so <laughs> I just finished Agnes Grey this week. And yeah, I can't wait to have the discussion uh, with everyone on the Facebook and with you. Now, I do have to say, and I am sorry, but Agnes mm-hmm. Grey is not my favorite book. Sure, that's fine. It's all right. Mm-hmm. And there there are some like really beautiful passages in there. And there's some lovely scenes. And there's some horrifying scenes tucked in there as well. And... I can totally understand why it was overshadowed by her other book, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, which is just like a force, like it's a Mm -hmm. gust of a book, you know? And then I just, yeah, Agnes Grey just kind of happens. And then, but the thing that's interesting about it and the thing that really interested me when I was reading around it was just like all of that characteristically problematic Charlotte shit that's going on behind the scenes before and after publication so that's Mm -hmm. really interesting I like honestly horrified when I read the introduction to my copy I was just like oh wow but we will we will get into that but not this episode yeah we will get into it for sure um I will start off by saying and I know we've had conversations off air about this 
Uh, one of the things I do also like about Agnes Gray is that it is a very simple, straightforward book. And it's mm-hmm. going to be, we're going to have a lot of conversations where we compare it to maybe Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre and Villette, um, where there's similar themes, but like just they're written very, very differently. And I think one thing that I said to you off air was like, the thing about Agnes Gray is that it's like, if we think about the Bronte sisters as fashion designers, mm-hmm. like... Charlotte's got a lot going on, right? There's like beading and there's, you know, all kinds, there's tool, there's all kinds of fabric and it's just like a lot. Um, But I think Anne Bronte, what she's done here is just really kind of perfect the like perfect little black dress of a novel. It's very like tailored and straightforward and simple. And you can wear it on many occasions. I love her prose. I just feel like she forgot to attach the sleeves. That's the, I just, like the back panels are missing. Like there's, there are holes for the pockets, but the pockets aren't there. It's always like, (laughs) there's just something, like she hasn't hemmed it. I don't know. There's just something Mm -hmm. where it's like, I get it. And I, I love her prose and I prefer her prose. And I said that to you and I was like, oh wow, this book is like so chill and I really enjoy it. But um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's get into it. So a little background. Anne began writing Agnes Gray during her five-year stint working as a governess for the Robinson family between 1840 and 1845. So she's in her early 20s. The book also pulls from her experiences working for the Ingham family. um, And it's a blend of fact and fiction, which we're really going to get into, showing the evils inflicted upon governesses from their wealthy employers. Longtime listeners and Bronte buffs will know her time with the Robinsons came to an abrupt end when Anne discovered her brother, who was employed by the family as a tutor, was having an affair with the lady of the house, which we are going to be discussing. Bramwell Bronte. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So Anne resigned out of principle and she and Branwell returned to Haworth. Branwell, of course, buried himself in a bottle of alcohol and Anne buried herself in her books. Unemployed and living at home once more, Anne, along with her older sisters, Emily and Charlotte, published a book of poetry under the pseudonyms Kerr, Ellis, and Acton Bell. The three then began working and revising their first novels. So Emily was working on Wuthering Heights, Charlotte was working on The Professor, and Anne was working on Agnes Grey. And she never worked as a governess again after that. Now, for those of you that haven't joined in a read along before, over the next few weeks, we're going to break down the book uh, a section at a time. And we're going to pair these chapter discussions with interviews from writers and academics. And so if you are planning on reading the book, and you don't want spoilers, because I do believe that you can be spoiled on a book that was published 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that it's valid to be upset by it. Uh, stop listening now because we're going to talk about chapters one to eight in detail so if you haven't read them pause it come back we'll just be we'll be here waiting for you or you know maybe you want to hear us just tell you what happens in the book yeah maybe yeah maybe that's your bag so that's okay so then we should like we should add some plot points in for those people So like Hannah said, we are going to be discussing chapters one through eight. And then later on, we are going to be joined by Adele Hay, who was the author of the book Anne Bronte Reimagined. 
So in chapter one, we are introduced to our heroine, the titular Agnes Grey, and we're introduced to her, I think, surprisingly happy family home. Mm-hmm. Her father is a minister. He's got this moderate income. Her mother was a woman of means who chose to marry below her status for love. And she foregoes like any inheritance or fortune from her family who I think they've like, it wasn't like a big thing, but they've allowed themselves what is they've consciously uncoupled from yes. her family. <laughs> yes, they have. Yeah. And there is this line about her mum and her decision to marry Mr. Grey. And it says, a carriage and a lady's maid were great conveniences, but thank heaven she had feet to carry her and hands to minister to her own necessities. Yeah. That whole paragraph, I remember, actually, is yeah, quite the lovely. Description, I think, yeah. Yeah. She says something, too, like about she'd rather live in like a humble home with Mr. Grey than, you know, a mansion, something along yeah. those lines. It's really I lovely. I think what's interesting about it is like, those speeches of like love is more important than money are all very well and good but her mum is like super practical Mm -hmm. and I don't yeah and I think that I did like the point is because I saw comparisons between them and the Bennett's Mrs. Bennett is not a practical woman so she might have said those things but like that was that was never going to be their marriage right Mm -hmm. right and I think Mrs. Grey is she's quite unique in that sense Mm -hmm. and yeah, you get you get more of it kind of throughout the course of the novel. So they have uh, six children, but only two survive infancy. And those are Mary and Agnes. And Agnes is younger than Mary by about five or six years. So it's quite, you know, it's a considerable age gap between them. Mm-hmm. After a series of financial mishaps and some poor economising on Mr. Gray's part, uh, which is, again, one of the reasons that they get compared to the Bennets, uh, the family kind of descend into this genteel poverty. You know, the carpets are threadbare, mm-hmm. their clothes are getting patched a lot, but it's more or less fine. Um, they have, yeah, they there's like a money-making scheme and it goes awry. They just can't catch a break financially. Yeah. And so Mary, the oldest, starts to paint to earn money, which is like very genteel. It's like a very... Mm-hmm polite way of her kind of earning a a living and also you know it's like a little tenant throw forward which happens a lot in Agnes Grey Uh, and then Agnes gets this idea that what she's going to do is actually go into the world and earn her bread as a governess and everyone is just like no way you don't know anything you're kind of like a bit naive and not you're not practical like your mum's like it's not it's not going to work you don't have to do this but despite all that she does accept a position with the Bloomfields family who are they're told that they are a very nice woman and a retired tradesman and they have a comfortable fortune they have three children and they agree to pay her 25 pounds a year so chapters two to five are devoted to the duration of her time with the Bloomfields which in total lasts a little less than a year so like a school year essentially Um, she arrives with them after this like horrible journey where her hands are like frozen and her face is all like red and frostbitten and she's disheveled and feeling just like really unsure about her like experience and like suitability for the role, which I actually quite relate to because sometimes I get very, very confident applying for a job. I'm like, yeah, I can do this. And then I get there and I'm like, oh, wait. (laughs) Did I, I started just, like, a new job last week and I really I regret it. I don't know why I've done <laughs> Did I just I bullshit it. my way into this job? <laughs> I did. So, 
<laughs> so that is essentially what she's um, feeling. Uh, here's a, a little quote. I was near 19, but thanks to my retired life and protecting care of my mother and sister, I well knew that many a girl of 15 or under was gifted with a more womanly address and greater ease and self-possession than I. So she's like, oh, wait, I've been sheltered. Yeah. And I like that she knows that about herself. Mm -hmm. It's a shame she realizes when she gets there, but you know. Too relatable though. Yeah. So the Bloomfields as a family are wealthy. I think they I think they're actually a little wealthier than that she's expecting because they're like, mm-hmm. oh, we can only pay you twenty five pounds. Yeah. And then she gets there and it's like, oh no. They, they seem can, they, they seem to have a bit of money. Mm-hmm. So they're wealthy and specifically they are also very cruel. The children are petted and fussed over by their mum. They're kind of kept at this like arm's length by their father. And any faults that they have are just from the get-go ascribed to the poor examples of the staff. So either their nursery maids or previous mm-hmm. governesses. And it is established very quickly that Anne is not going to have like basically any authority over them, mm-hmm. but will be held in total account of all of their actions. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, just from the get-go, the children are just bickering and you, you get a real sense of who they're going to be just from that first introduction. So uh, Tom, for example, who is the eldest child and the only son, is just absolutely going to be her master, like just in title and just in, in their relationship. So there's this quote. Oh, Tom, what a darling you are, exclaimed his mother. Come and kiss dear mama. And then won't you show Miss Gray your schoolroom and your nice new books? I won't kiss you, Mama, but I will show Miss Gray my schoolroom and my new books. And my schoolroom and my new books, Tom, said Marianne. They're mine too. They're mine, he replied decisively. Come along, Miss Gray. I'll escort you. <laughs> he and, like, owns everything all. is his. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I think even, I don't know if that like pops for you, but I think it's that like the I'll escort you. Like he's a child, but he's like such yeah. a, a little man. Mm hmm. Tom is an absolute brute, not only in the way that he rides his rocking horse and insists when he has a real pony of his own, he intends to use his whips and spurs liberally, but also most famously probably is in the way that he tortures birds, right? So this is behavior that he brags about and is openly encouraged by his family. And some of the passages about this are quite shocking to read still. Um, Yeah. Like chilling. I had chills yeah. reading, mm-hmm. reading the stuff with him. Yeah. Uh, he says, uh, sometimes I give them to the cat. Sometimes I cut them up in pieces with my pen knife. But next, I mean to roast them alive. So in the third chapter, we're properly introduced to Mr. Bloomfield. So Mr. Bloomfield is even colder than his wife, who is a frosty bitch. Um, and it's very <laughs> clear from the get-go that he is invest, uh, invested in the appearance of decency in his children, kind of much more than them learning anything about goodness or respect. And Yeah, that's very important. I just want to underline that. The appearance of yeah, decency. It's capitalised. The appearance mm-hmm. of decency. And then this isn't this isn't related, but I honestly was just laughing out loud, so I had to talk about it. There is this amazing scene 
where at dinner he is just failed to be satisfied with anything that's set in front of him. So this mutton is served and he serves it to the children and his wife and to Agnes. And then it's like, mm, no, I'm not having this. This is bad. Yeah. Bring me the beef. And then he cuts the beef and he's like, this beef is bad. Look how badly they've like, I think it's like how the beef is cut. He's like, uh, this is what happens when you give like savages food. He's just like, he thinks his servants are just so ignorant because they're poor, basically. He's like, it's just Mm -hmm. wasted on them. Um, And just like nothing, just nothing is right. And he says to his wife, well, that beats everything. A lady professes to keep house and doesn't even know what fish is for dinner, professes to order fish and doesn't specify what. And then she says, perhaps, Mr. Bloomfield, you will order dinner yourself in the future. I am surprised that she like, yeah, it's it's great. It's, it's surprising that she actually does clap back, but it is interesting to see how like the power and like the abuse trickles down. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just thought it was funny when he just like served it to everyone else and then sent it out. <laughs> I think there are some parts in this book which are hilarious. Oh yeah. they really like, are. Really funny, like very comedic. And um, I, I know in, on the, in the Facebook group, I was like, oh, I really want to see like a comedy adaptation of this. And it was before I got to the bird bit. And so, and then afterwards I was like, I don't know how much, a dark comedy maybe. Yeah. Not like a rom-com. Yeah. It, I don't it know. can be but done, there are some, I think. Yeah. There are some really funny, funny scenes. Um, so I do think that there are times in this book where it's kind of on the brink of it being the story of a governess coming into an unhappy home and then through perseverance and love and upholding her upholding her own simple beliefs in right and wrong that she's going to like help everyone love each other mm-hmm. scenes like that and she keeps thinking about all of the stuff and how patient she's going to be with the children but then just the more you read you're like oh this isn't mary poppins okay yeah so instead her situation is taking a physical and mental toll on her Again, very relatable in the workplace. Mm. Agnes regales uh, the reader with all sorts of tales from the classroom, which include attempting to bribe her students, uh, appeal to their hearts only to determine that they actually have none, um, and her eventual physical attempts to force them to learn and behave like actually holding Tom's hand while he writes lines or sort of like sitting against the door to prevent them from leaving. In chapter four, she lays out what could almost be described as Agnes's mission statement for telling her own story. She says, my design in writing the few last pages was not to amuse, but to benefit those whom it might concern. He that has no interest in such matters will doubtless have skipped over them with a cursory glance and perhaps a malediction against the prolixity of a writer. But if a parent has therefrom gathered any useful hint or an or or an unfortunate governess received thereby the slightest benefit i am well rewarded for my pains and i think what i really like about that that bit in particular and also like these chapters is that it is just like a series of vignettes almost so she doesn't mm-hmm. tackle the story in chronological order you get like a lot of tom then you get like a lot of fanny i can't remember her name harriet <laughs> jane I can't remember that. yeah yeah Little and girl. it's just, it definitely does read like, reader, you don't even know the half of it. She's like, this is yeah. just the juicy stuff. There is mm-hmm. so much more. And I think, yeah, I think it's very much for other governesses, right? Yes. It's like, oh, you, you're going to know about this. 
And so another character that we are eventually introduced to, um, as well as the Bloomfield's parents, it's their paternal grandmother. So Mrs. Bloomfield mm-hmm. Senior, who is excellent. Again, she's another very funny character, but she's a total narc. I think she must have been inspired by a real person because yeah. all of her mannerisms and like some of the phrases that Agnes is describing um, are just, they're so expertly drawn. Mm-hmm. So she says, she would often come to me and talk in a confidential strain, nodding and shaking her head and gesticulating with hands and eyes as a certain class of old ladies are wont to do, though I never knew one that carried the peculiarity to so great an extent. <laughs> She's like the oldest old lady. Yeah. The damiest dame. Very good visual. I mean, I would actually love to see a dark comedy adaptation of this. Yeah, there's like another paragraph later on where she kind of like stage directs the Mm -hmm. mannerisms. And I wanted to put that in. I actually had that like as a quote that we would read, but there's just no way that we, like you either have to act it or you have to read it. But I don't know how that's going to come across as an audio book because she has the dialogue and then in the parentheses, like the toss of the head and... Mm-hmm. You know, oh, it's yeah, it's ex- very funny. So then, in chapter five, our final chapter with the Bloomfields, the things really come to a head with the introduction of Uncle Robson, who mm-hmm. is perhaps out of all of them the most like carelessly cruel, and also like the inspiration to little baby Tom. Mm-hmm. When like it's not his dad, like his dad's allowing it to happen, but it's Uncle Robson who is his mother's brother. Yeah, Tom's mother's brother. Mrs. Yeah. Mrs. Bloomfield's brother. <laughs> um, so our first introduction to him is quite funny. He's described as being a tall, self-sufficient fellow with dark hair and sallow complexion like his sister, a nose that seemed to disdain the earth and little grey eyes, frequently half-closed with a mixture of real stupidity and affected contempt for, of all surrounding objects. He was a thick-set, strongly built man, but he had found some means of compressing his waist into a remarkably small compass and that, together with the unnatural stillness of his form, showed that the lofty-minded, manly Mr. Robson, the scorner of the female sex, was not above the foppery of stays. Great. I thought about his waist a lot. Cutting. Cutting. <laughs> I really liked the the nose that seemed to disdain the earth. Mm, and yeah. when she's like, a mixture of real stupidity. Like, Agnes does not hold back on some of no. these people. It's, Yeah. So when you get past the nose and his hypocritical use of stays, because you can tell like he's definitely a guy who's being a shit to women for wearing them and then kind of like, yeah, yeah. Oh, women do take a long time to get ready. (laughs) Um, When you kind of get past that, you do realise that there's almost like this horror to the guy. And he reminds... He reminds me a lot of Arthur Huntington, who is the husband in Tenon, and it yeah. feels like he's the same man, but kind of this like smaller version of him. And I know mm-hmm. that Samantha Ellis, who wrote the introduction in my edition, says that Arthur is like a, uh, a future Tom Bloomfield. And I wanted to share the next passage because I actually think Arthur is hiding in all of the Bloomfield men. I don't yes. think it is yeah, as simple too. as it being Tom. I think it's Tom, Mr. Robson and uh, Mr. Bloomfield. I think it's all of them. So this is talking about the uncle and his relationship with the children. Mm. Whatever was wrong in either her or her brother, he would encourage by laughing at, if not by actually praising. 
People little know the injury they do to children by laughing at their faults and making a pleasant jest of what their true friends have endeavoured to teach them to hold to hold in grave abhorrence. Though not a positive drunkard, Mr Robson habitually swallowed great quantities of wine and took with relish occasional, occasional glass of brandy and water. He taught his nephew to imitate him in this to the utmost of his ability and to believe that the more wine and spirits he could take and the better he liked them, the more he manifested his bold and manly spirit and rose superior to his sister's. Mr Bloomfield had not much to say against it, for his favourite beverage was gin and water, of which he took a considerable portion every day by dint of constant sipping, and to that I chiefly attributed his dingy complexion and waspish temper. Oof, going so, all yeah, in. So yeah, there's, there's so much tenant there. Mm-hmm, there really it's is. like, yeah, uh, one of the worst things that Arthur does, I think, in Helen's opinion, is when, as a game, he he actively is trying to make their son like copy him and mimic him and like mm-hmm. drink like him and and that's something that keep, just keeps happening with Mr. Robson and Tom. So I think there's like some early thoughts happening there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now he also actively encourages the children's like disregard and contempt for living creatures. So that's the other thing that's quite upsetting. So he's cruel to dogs even though um they're described as being his favorites. Yeah. Interesting. Um, During his visits, he gives Tom a nest full of hatchlings uh, and Tom won't share them with his sisters, but says that they will watch him fettle them off. So that's really upsetting. Um, My word, but I will wallop them. See if I don't buy gum there. But there's rare sport for me in that nest. I thought like it's it's such like a schoolboy delivery of like this horrible thing. That's yeah, happening. horrible like, thing. It's so well written. Like such yeah. good dialogue. Uh, so Agnes pleads with him not to kill them. And she tries all of these promises. She's really like turning herself inside out, just trying to convince this child not to just murder these birds. It's not the mm-hmm. first time it's happened, you know. Right. Um, And I think she kind of realizes, she's like, well, you know what, Tom, if you're going to kill them, then actually I will kill them myself, but I will Mm -hmm. kill them quickly and it will not be as bad as whatever it is that you've got planned. So promise me you won't kill them or I I will have to do it. And obviously he just ignores her and he's like, no way. Mm -hmm. So Agnes takes a very large rock and just crushes the nest Mm -hmm. just in one go. Um, And as she does it, Uncle Robson kind of comes upon them. And then when he hears what happens, he's just like whatever i will literally just go and get another nest of birds right and then agnes says to him not not only to her her employer but like the a relative of her employer which i almost Mm -hmm. think there's like a separation there so it's even bolder because that's not someone Mm -hmm. that she has discussions about the children with right um and she says if you do that then i'll kill those too and then she goes back to the house and she has this frustrating conversation with mrs bloomfield and they have this like head-to-head where they're discussing like scripture they're talking about the bible and just the fact that uh like the moral implications of how we treat animals and agnes cannot get through to her at all that it is this vile act to kill or mistreat helpless creatures and the mum is just like they're put here for our pleasure and actually i think it's worse that you would spoil the fun of a child I think that's when she finally realizes, like, it's over. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no 
there's no point in, in her even being there because everything that she can do will be undermined. Exactly. And then they fire yeah. her. So and then they fire her. <laughs> and then they fire her shortly after. <laughs> so then in chapter six, Agnes uh, returns home only to find that through scrimping and the selling of Mary's paintings, her family has almost paid off all, all their debts. So great. So surprising. Yeah, that, I was... That, that whole storyline is just wrapped up. I was like, oh, that's lovely. Okay. Um, <laughs> so they're not going to touch her hard-earned money, and they just are like, hey, you should keep that. Yeah, that's nice. You should you should have that. You should have Good that. You. You, you earned that, which is very nice. Um, noticeably, too, they don't throw the failure in her face or say, like, I told you so. They are just genuinely happy to have her back home with them. Um, her mm-hmm. mother actually thinks that the issue lies with the fact that the Bloomfields were new money. Yeah. Um, class issues, again here, um, and describes Mr. Bloomfield as a purse-proud trader and an arrogant upstart. So Mama Gray actually suggests that Agnes seek another position with a wealthier family who surely won't have half as many issues as the Bloomfields, which I find very interesting. Um, She encourages Agnes to advertise her services and up her salary. And I love, Mm. love, love um, that she takes this moment to teach Agnes the value of hustling and knowing her own worth. And eventually Agnes does accept a position with a family who are situated near Oxford, nearly 70 miles away, which is quite a distance. Um, So her family are not super keen, but Agnes is very hopeful and she accepts the children are older and she thinks her own like increased increased experience and their age will mean that um, the task won't be as arduous. It's going to be better this time around. So chapters seven and eight see Agnes make her way to her new position with the Murrays. And again, the weather reflects not only her journey, but her mood and then her welcome as well. So it's very cold. It's like actually snowing this time. It's just, it's the chilliest, it's dark, it's lonely, it's solitary. And I think when she arrives, one of the things that's really interesting is that in this household, even she won't find sympathy from like even the servants who just mm-hmm. could not give less fucks. They yeah. won't bring her her bag. They take their time doing anything. She like, she is not introduced to the parents. She's just straight up introduced to the children. I think it's like a few days before she sees the mom or it's like the next day. And she's just like an afterthought to everyone. Mm-hmm. And although the new children are older and calmer than the Bloomfields, they are no less manipulative and dismissive of her. And actually, Mrs. Murray, in her own way, uh, has these unrealistic expectations on what Agnes is going to achieve with her children. Mm-hmm. So the Bloomfields, it was like it was very physical and they would like run away from her and she would be like chasing them or they'd be like in puddles. Like it's more childish, but yeah. I think for Mrs. Murray, it's it's kind of like, you will teach them as much as you possibly can. Like I want them to be really smart and you have to do that. But also um, I don't want you to like force them to do it. I don't want them to have to work very hard. So yeah. if you could just like make them smart, but without them doing anything, that would be great. Mm-hmm. And we are introduced to her sons, but they basically aren't in this book. So yeah. we're not going to talk about them. That's fair. It's fine. 
But the Dorses, Rosalie and Matilda, are very, very, very much in uh, Agnes's care. So, like, that's her focus. Yeah. And um, Rosalie is about 16 when Agnes first joins the family, and Matilda is about 13. So their personalities and attitudes to life are already formed. Such a such a difficult age. Such a fun <laughs> age. Um, Rosalie is pretty, and she's aware of it. Uh, she's smart, but she will not apply herself. Uh, caring only when it serves her own purposes. Yeah. So... That said, Agnes does seem to like her, but does make allowances for her. And she says she gradually laid her she gradually laid aside her airs and in time became as deeply attached to me as it was possible for her to be to one of my character and position. Matilda, however, is a tomboy and she's rough and she's unladylike. She's prone to swearing and fonder of dogs and horses than of needlework and music. So Agnes really has her work cut out for her with Matilda. Um, Matilda's Agnes says that as an animal, Matilda was all right. I know. It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I mean, she definitely sees her. Yeah, she's she's like, this girl's a lost cause. I mean, for sure. Yeah not happening no (laughs) so before we get into any more of mine and lauren's hot takes and opinions and the listener hot takes and opinions we do have a very special guest to help us unpack this first set of chapters adele hay is a lifelong bronte aficionada and an advocate for anne bronte's place in the canon of classic english writers alongside her better known sisters charlotte and emily The Brontes inspired Adele's love of books from a young age, and she even went on to become a bookbinder, which is awesome, before starting work on an academic project that focuses on the textual criticism of Anne Bronte's work and how it has been edited ever since. And um, as I mentioned earlier, she is also the author of Anne Bronte Reimagined. I really enjoy Agnes Gray and Mm. I know that a lot a lot of the time it gets overshadowed by the tenant of Wildfell Hall just because that book is seen as the more feminist novel or it's seen as a lot more shocking and a lot more it feels as though she deals with more serious kind of social topics in that book but Mm. I feel like you can you can find a lot of that in Agnes Gray as well and it's it's only a short book it um at first first appearances or first impressions of the book you kind of think you're in for just a very run-of-the-mill this is this woman's life this is Agnes Agnes's life and you can read it without picking up too much on some of the social commentary that Anne was trying to get across mm-hmm. so yeah, you can read it a few different ways. You can have the, well, this is just a kind of a slice of life for somebody who was a governess at that time. Or you can read it as something that kind of goes a bit deeper into the social social commentary of the day, like mm-hmm. things that Anne was trying to write about. I think the prose is really gorgeous. And there was the critic, I think it was, was it George Moore, who said that it was one of the most perfect um prose 
novels in all of English literature. And I, I kind of agree, even if his sentiment was, oh, it's, it's very, it's sweet and lovely. Mm -hmm. um, because in parts, it isn't just sweet and lovely. I think the way that it is written is very, it flows very well, and it's incredibly readable. And I think sometimes this goes back to the debate about how if something is readable, then, you know, well, it can't really be great literature right. because great literature is supposed to be difficult to get into and difficult to read. But this is, you know, it flows incredibly well. It has very fleshed out characters mm -hmm. who are very, very believable, particularly Agnes. Um, and you spend, you do spend a lot of time in her head, which I guess you could say is true for any first person narrative, but with Agnes particularly, you get a lot of how she's feeling about certain things and what her ideas are mm -hmm. about certain issues. Anne Bronte is often accused of being very um, kind of moralistic and didactic. Mm -hmm. And even though you do get these passages that are kind of monologues from Agnes they never feel like when you're reading them you don't feel like you're being taught a lesson mm -hmm. you don't feel like it's didactic you know you can be two or three paragraphs in before you realize oh this is we're in Agnes's thoughts right now she's not really describing any action this isn't really contributing to the plot but I'm really enjoying seeing how her mind works mm -hmm. Yeah, it never, it never feels like she's trying to take this as a teachable moment kind of thing. It all feels very natural, mm -hmm. which is something that I think Anne Bronte did very, very well. She was very clever in that if she had something that she wanted to discuss or if there was something important to her that she felt needed attention, she wouldn't just outright say, this is wrong and my characters act this way and this is how I think everybody should act. She kind of, she demonstrates her beliefs rather than forcing it, <laughs> forcing yeah. it down your throat kind of thing. She goes, well, you know, you get to see how characters react to certain situations. And again, it's all very um, believable and very relatable a lot of the time. It's show, not tell, which is like... Yeah, exactly. The number one rule of like script writing. You can read Agnes Grey or even The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. And I, I feel like they're very good books to just make you feel like you're watching a film or you're mm -hmm. watching somebody's life. It the, the words tend to disappear almost while you're reading it and you're, you're actually there with Agnes and the other characters discussing things there's a chapter where uh, Anne goes to visit uh, Nancy Brown one of the cottages who's mm -hmm. having a bit of a hard time at the moment um, you know she's a bit too ill to go to church and Agnes goes to read to her because she's a nice person and you know that's just what Agnes does and poor Nancy is very upset because the rector Mr Hatfield has told her that she needs to go to church and you know if if she can't get there that means that she's not a good enough Christian and all this kind of nonsense that Agnes um you know doesn't stand for mm -hmm. and it's a very kind of dialogue heavy chapter mm -hmm. 
but the dialogue again it's all very natural and I think it it kind of it shows you just how observant Anne Bronte was as a person and as a writer that she could build or she could write a whole chapter that is almost completely dialogue and have it feel very natural and like you're you're kind of watching a scene in a period drama maybe rather than reading the actual thing and it's yeah I think one of the the main strengths of Agnes Grey is just the style of the prose Mm -hmm. and how natural everything is and how well the dialogue is written. I do think it has this like documentarian feel um, absolutely. And it's interesting now, I'm just kind of like thinking about that, like, and what you're saying, like the dialogue heavy and just how kind of stripped away the p- prose is compared to someone like Charlotte Bronte, who's really <laughs> bringing a lot to the table. I feel like um, Anne Bronte does that a lot as well. So mm-hmm. you have um, Agnes's moments of introspection and the monologues and things, but they again, they never feel as if they should be edited down in any way. It feels like Anne was a very good editor of herself Mm -hmm. and she knew how to keep um, those big uh, sections of introspection or monologue. She knew how to make those fit into the characters. She knew how to keep those consistent. Mm -hmm. Um, There are things like uh, in Shirley, for example, by Charlotte, you have uh, Caroline Hellstone having a, a quite a huge monologue on how she feels about uh, women and work and how it's important for women to have an outlet. And I love that part of the book. It's one of my favourite parts, but at the same time, it didn't feel consistent with Caroline at that point. Mm-hmm. And it almost felt like we were losing Caroline and getting Charlotte instead, mm-hmm. which, you know, I absolutely love that section of the book and I love the message. But when you come back to Anne, when Anne gives those moments to her characters, they feel so consistent with those characters' beliefs just because she's, she's, she does such a good job of getting into the mind of the people that she's writing about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. She, I, I love what you said about her being a good editor. I think that is really on point. Because yeah. I think both books also just feel so neat. Yeah, it's it's very easy. You could, you could um, fly through Agnes Grey in a day or in a weekend. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's one of those where you might start off wanting to take notes and wanting to take your time with it. But there's mm-hmm. just something about it that completely grips you. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not even wanting to get to the end to know how it happens. It's just you want to spend time with these people, yeah. particularly Agnes. And even the people that um, normally you wouldn't like very much, like uh, Rosalie M- Murray, mm-hmm. you know, she she's not entirely likable, but she's interesting. And there aren't really any passages in the book or there aren't any people any characters that she focuses on that you wish she'd skip past. There isn't, I don't feel like there's a wasted sentence in the book. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Are there any scenes in particular 
you sort of relate to or you, or that just like stand out to you that you really love? I felt really like I related to Agnes this time around. I don't know if it's like, I just was thinking a lot about like millennial work scene and just how that, that whole crisis, my the crisis of my career over the past 15 years, essentially. <laughs> yeah, um, that was, I think that relates to one of my favorite scenes in the book. So Agnes Grey is a book about, well, among other things, it's a book about earning your living and how to find your place in society such that you find a vocation that makes you feel happy, but also makes you feel useful. It's kind of like, um, oh, I can't remember what the diagram's called anymore, but it, it shows you where your ideal location is, where you should be in a job. So mm -hmm. is it useful? Will it make a good difference in the world? And does it fulfill you? Does it make you feel happy? And I feel like Agnes Grey is a book that's kind of about that. Um, so yeah, one of the passages that stands out to me the most is, again, it's in the, the, uh, the chapter called The Cottages. And Agnes is thinking just about how lonely she is in her job. Um, you know, she, she makes it clear in one of the, the first chapters, I think, that she is incredibly excited about being a teacher and she feels like there's no, there's no um, job more noble than influencing young minds and teaching them and teaching them the difference between right and wrong and also teaching them to have value in, the, in their selves. Um, so she's incredibly excited about being a teacher, but then her first experience is so horrific it goes, it's completely not what she expects. Um, so with the the Bloomfield children, with Tom especially and his violence, you know, she she kind of despairs because she absolutely has no power over the children. She's not allowed to mm -hmm. discipline them in any way. And she's eventually dismissed. But it doesn't it doesn't put her off going back to teaching which I think is wonderful. And she immediately uh, tries looking for a second position. Um, so the second position with the Murrays is a much better fit for her, but she still feels alienated as a governess. And Anne um, writes very wonderfully about the trials of being a governess all through the novel but there's yeah this passage after she's just so Agnes has just had a really lovely afternoon talking to Nancy Brown one of the cottages and feeling like you know she's had a really lovely conversation with somebody um she has made herself useful to somebody you know she's visited somebody who's not feeling very well and then she kind of she realizes what kind of thing is missing from her life um, just because she doesn't really get to speak to many people outside of the people that she's the students that she has mm -hmm. and the family that she works for and you know she talks a bit about how when she gets back to the gets back to the um to Horton Lodge she's feeling quite happy that she has some nice things to think about, but also lamenting the fact that the only people she really has to talk to are 
her students and um, she says my only companions had been unamiable children and ignorant wrong-headed girls from whose fatiguing folly and broken solitude was often a relief most earnestly desired and dearly prized but to be restricted to such associates was a serious evil both in its immediate effects and the consequences that were likely to ensue. Never a new idea or a stirring thought came to me from without, and such as rose within me were, for the most part, miserably crushed at once, or doomed to sicken and fade away because they could not see the light. And she says, um, a bit later on in that passage, she says that, um, I seem to feel my intellect deteriorating, my heart petrifying, my soul contracting, and I trembled lest my very moral perceptions should become deadened, my distinctions of right and wrong confounded, and all my better faculties be sunk at last beneath the baleful, baleful influence of such a mode of life. So it's kind of, it. I remember reading it and thinking it was a little bit dramatic at the time, but also mm -hmm. I was in a, a, a similar place myself when I first read that, you know, feeling quite lonely in a job that wasn't, necessarily what I wanted to do mm -hmm. and Anne Bronte picks up on that so well I mean it's yeah. it's very clear that she's been in that position herself and the words that she gives to Agnes of frustration and not feeling stimulated mm -hmm. enough and not feeling like she's reached her full potential I think are very relatable so I talk about uh, and Bronte a lot to my friends who all my friends who I know enjoy reading and mm -hmm. a few of them I've made them read Agnes Grey mm -hmm. and they'll come and find me as soon as they finish me or send me text messages and go she how did she get inside my head it was like she was there <laughs> this is this is how I feel I want all of this printed out and yeah I think one of my friends said um it reminded her of reading something like uh, a book by Sally Rooney, just the way that mm -hmm. she got into, she, she's tapped into something in a generation and a lot of people can relate to it. And I imagine anyone who was kind of a governess at the time that Anne was writing this, if they'd read Agnes Grey, they would have found a lot in there to relate to. Now, a lot of people do talk about Agnes Grey as sort of, it, just almost like a, just the complete real life experience of Anne Bronte. Um, do you, how many similarities do you think are in there between the real life and the story? There are quite a few similarities. So um, both Agnes and Anne were governesses for two different families. Uh, you can argue that Anne's first experience of being a governess um, directly influenced how she wrote about the Bloomfield family. She didn't have a great time there. She didn't last very long. She was also dismissed by the, the Inghams that she worked for at the time. You have things like Anne's, oh, sorry, the way that Agnes feels about religion is quite similar to the way that Anne felt. I mean, there are, there are so many similarities in the book that it's very easy to see why a lot of people think of Agnes Grey as entirely autobiographical. I mean it starts mm -hmm. with the line all true histories must contain instruction mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people see that and think oh so this is uh, completely autobiographical with a few right. 
things changed but I think it's important to remember that Anne was a writer and I feel like every experience or all of Anne's experiences were probably you know she kept them all stored somewhere as oh I could I could write about this and you know she was a very very observant person so even though there are a lot of similarities it's important to remember that Agnes's voice is not always necessarily Anne's voice we're mm. seeing Anne through a few different filters when we read Agnes Grey we're seeing Anne the writer we're seeing Agnes's voice and like I said before I think she was an incredibly good editor of yeah. you know herself and I don't think she would have written anything that was so personal that like, I don't think she would have written anything that she was un uncomfortable with writing. I think it, it's dangerous to read it purely as autobiographical because that's when things like people start to think that Edward Weston was entirely based on William Waitman, right. the, the curate who came to Howarth, who was incredibly charming and, you know, wrote the, the Brontes, uh, wrote the Bronte sisters, their Valentines and things. And there's a whole, there's the whole Anne and William Waitman were completely in love with each other and they were going to get engaged and things. And mm -hmm. that's, that's a narrative that's come about purely based on, I think, the letter that Charlotte wrote to Ellen about how they were sighing at each other in church or something. Mm -hmm. And then you go and read Agnes Grey and you read the character of Edward Weston and his relationship with Agnes. And it's very, very easy to think of it as, wish fulfillment or to read into it and you know a lot of people will read it thinking oh it would be so lovely if if Anne and William Waitman did actually get together and did love each other and if you read it with that mindset it's it's very easy to see this as a, a confession almost right but I, I think personally I think Edward Weston was just the kind of he was maybe a mix of all of the people that Anne knew who had wonderful qualities. So you could, he has a lot of qualities that both her father and William Waitman and, you know, any other people that she knew, any of their good qualities. He's just like a, a huge mix of all of those. And it, he could be the kind of person that Anne wished for herself, but mm -hmm. it, it doesn't stop him being a very kind of, just a nice character who's also realistic. There are people like him who exist kind of thing. I think um, like the big thing with Emily and Anne is like we're seeing them through like Charlotte, right? Like the, that yeah. filter. And so everyone is always trying to play detective and like piece things together from the books and Charlotte's letters and Charlotte's, you know, biographical notice. So yeah. It's very hard, which you're doing a lot of work on that, which sounds really fascinating. Yeah. So the more I, so from reading Anne's books for the first time and being blown away by them, I then read everything that I could about Anne. And I just really wanted to know how the person who wrote those books could become the person that I had in my head who was completely different. And yeah, I wanted to know where this reputation had come from and how it was so drastically 
how it changed so drastically over the years. So when Agnes Gray and the tenant of Wildfell Hall first came out, they, well, the tenant of Wildfell Hall especially sold incredibly well. And, you know, people were shocked at the violence in, in both of them. You know, you've got um, the violence of uh, some of Agnes's students' uh, pupils in Agnes Grey. Um, so people were shocked by the depictions of violence, the depictions of amoral behaviour and things. And the tenant of Wildfell Hall sold incredibly well. And people praised the prose in Agnes Grey too. And Charlotte did edit quite a lot of Anne and Emily's poetry. And she told her publisher at the time not to republish The Tenant of Wildfell Hall because she felt that the book was a complete mistake. And so the book remained unpublished in the UK until 1854, when it was picked up by another publisher who saw an opportunity to, you know, make some money I wanted to print it as a kind of a cheap edition, mm-hmm. um, you know, that more people could get access to. But in doing so, they they cut quite a lot of the book out. And there are scholars who refer to this as the mangled text. And it was the only version of Wildfell Hall available in the UK for a very long time until people started to realise what had happened in maybe the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. and you can still buy um this bad version today in bookshops you know it's still sold as complete and unabridged and I feel like that is going to change soon I hope but mm-hmm. it you know if you already had this idea that Anne was not as talented was a bit meek a bit what did what did Charlotte say about her? She said she didn't. She wished for the the fire and the power and the originality of Emily. You know, if you've read all of that, yeah. and you've read Elizabeth Gaskell's um, biography of Charlotte, you've kind of have this image in your head of Anne, and then you read the bad version of Wildfell Hall, and you go, oh yeah, this is this is just not as good. Mm-hmm. And you know, and then if you Google some of Anne's poetry, a lot of the time you will get the um the version that's been edited by Charlotte and especially that's especially sad when you get to Anne's last poem that she wrote when she learned that she had tuberculosis and it's you know the way that Charlotte's edited it it makes it seem as though Anne is ready to die she's had enough of the world and she's quite happy happy to take her place in heaven. And you read Anne's original version and it's so full of, of anger and sadness and kind of questioning her own beliefs. We, we get a very different version of Anne depending on which one we read. And yeah, sorry, before I say anything else, I just want to say I don't think that Charlotte did any of it maliciously. Right. I really don't. There's a whole... In the biographical notice, she said about wanting to remove the soil from her sister's names and things. And I really think she was coming at this from a place of wanting to protect her sister's reputations. Mm -hmm. And also, we can't understand the actions of somebody who's just lost three of her very close siblings in a very short space of time. Mm -hmm. But it's, 
it's very clear that a lot of her edits had a very negative and long-lasting effect on Anne's legacy. And we are back. Thank you, Adele. So I really liked what uh, you guys were talking about, um, especially when uh, Adele was saying that it's a really hard book to read slowly. Yeah, I was nervous about this for the read along because I'm like, ooh, we're going to break it up. But I do feel like it is a book that you can just fly through. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, definitely. I just wanted to like know what was happening next. Mm-hmm. And because there, because there are like these little stages and it's she's coming and going and traveling, it's yeah, I don't know. It's like you keep getting to a bit and you're like, oh, but what then? Like, yeah. but what then? What happens with this person? So, yeah. And I think what, yeah, the other thing that I really liked was just you guys like getting into just how autobiographical the book is and yeah. that breakdown of the different filters that we're seeing and through. It really reminded me of how people take the narrator in Jane Austen books to like be Jane Austen, mm-hmm. like it's her voice rather than being a character that Jane is writing. Yes. It's like a separate, it's not Jane Austen, it's the the character of the narrator. Yes. And the Brontes speak to the reader as well, because Jane Austen does it too, but the Brontes speak to the reader as the character. And mm-hmm. I think that that adds this like layer of distance. It's almost like this safety area, because by speaking in the voice of Agnes Grey, Ag- Anne is still able to like draw from all of this like easily recognisable experience but still blur the line between fact and fiction. Because it isn't Anne Bronte saying it, it's Agnes Grey saying it. And you know Agnes Grey is a character because the book is called Agnes Grey and she's in it. But obviously with Jane Austen, a lot of the time she'll just say something and it'll be like, that was Jane Austen's opinion. Right. Those are some of my favourite moments of the book too, is when Agnes kind of is like, I think there's a bit where she's blushing, which I think we'll we'll talk Mm -hmm. about future and she's like, oh, but I can't, I can't talk about that. And you're like, oh, wait, what? And you're like, oh, I, re- I remember that this is a character. This is not Anne Bronte. And that's yeah. something I think that's also going to come up later on, like next season for us, kind of some discussions that we're having right now that I just, yeah, I just want to underline for people. So I love that you said that. I also think, so the other, and I'm hesitant with it, because obviously I know there's, there is tension between like, is the book autobiographical? Is it mm-hmm. and taking everything kind of with a pinch of salt? But I really like that gray area and like mm-hmm. trying to figure it out. It's almost like a little puzzle. And I think that the first chapter is really interesting. And I think a lot of elements, but the first chapter really shows it. I think there's so much wish fulfillment happening. Yeah, She's like writing the life that might have been. So like, um, as we've said, like the, the parents her parents married under the same circumstances they had six children but unlike in real life uh, her mother doesn't die mm-hmm. and instead of losing all of the children but agnes and mary the brontes still had four and i just want to know like which of her siblings you think <laughs> she was killing off basically <laughs> Rude. i think it was charlotte and rummer <laughs> so yeah it's hard to say. I feel like we don't get enough of Mary. Mary's just kind of there. Yeah, she's just kind of there. But it just, yeah. it did make me laugh where I was but like, yeah, oh, any, so like two, in the story, okay. only two of them survived. Okay, interesting, interesting. I yeah, see that. Interesting, okay. Hmm. But yeah, so that, obviously, that is a stretch and I'm just being silly. But <laughs> I do think that um, it is really easy to just take the fact that there are these kind of 
similarities happening and then just be like, and everything in the entire book was true, which is the opposite of what happened when it was being criticized, when it was first published, because everyone's like, none of right. this is true. Right. <laughs> what a stretch. So, yeah. <laughs> how coarse, how ridiculous. One part of Adele's book, which I highlighted, reads, the critic Stevie Davis makes the important point that Anne works from autobiographical material rather than in servitude to it. So I quite like that. Yeah, I think that's um, really good. I think that's uh, an important thing to remember. And um, I think you're right. There's a lot of wish fulfillment in there. There's maybe a lot of like autobiographical seeds that she then takes off into different directions. Um, but yeah, yeah, not in servitude to it. So now a lot of our listeners also really into that opening chapter. Let's get into some listener comments. Lexington said, the first paragraph of this novel has gripped me in a way I've never had a book do before. Anne Bronte's writing is so rich. And I do, the first paragraph is a banger. Uh, so that first line is, all true histories contain instruction, though in some the treasure may be hard to find, and when found, so trivial in quantity that the dry, shriveled kernel scarcely compensates for the trouble of cracking the nut. Ooh. What's the last line of that paragraph? Because I think that last line is good too, isn't it? Shielded by my own obscurity and by the lapse of years and a few fictitious names, I do not fear to venture and will candidly lay before the public what I would not disclose to the most intimate friend. That is great. I'm going to tell all of you something that I would not tell one of my closest friends. Yeah. I'm in. I am in. That's the way every real housewife should start a confessional. (laughs) FYI. It's what they do. Yeah. (laughs) That's exactly it. You're that right. Is Agnes exactly Gray it. is Agnes Gray is to novels what the confessionals are to the Real Housewives. Mm-hmm. You've you've cracked it. We our work is done. We right. can just close the shop. Unlike, yeah, I'm we gonna should walk just go out now. Short, right, like bye. in my own confessional and be like, "We done here." <laughs> I think we're over. Hannah left the show. <laughs> is she coming back? <laughs> we uh, love the Real Housewives. Joy said, "I really like the stuff with her family, and I wish there was more of them throughout the book." Anne Bronte does such a good job of clearly drawing the picture of Agnes's mother and father in the little bit that we get of them. I wish we had more. I wish we had more of that to better feel the contrast between what Agnes has left and her life as a governess, which I, yes, I love that idea. I absolutely agree with. I think that's great. Those Um, are the missing pockets, by the way. That's it. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I especially wish there were more of her sister because it sounds like she and Agnes were close, but we really don't get to hear much about her, which is very true. Um, And I I did respond to that saying that I do love that we're getting a happy marriage and family on the page because that's that's pretty rare, isn't it? I'm like, Mm -hmm. when is the last time we saw a happy family in this group? And um, I'm currently reading Sharon Wright's book on Mariah Bronte. And I definitely recommend it if you guys are looking to sort of get a prequel on Mr. and Mrs. Gray. You're going to be hearing from Sharon in a couple of weeks and we're going to go over that. But the Bronte marriage is like absolutely fascinating and would definitely make for good reading material. I just want to say as well, like I'm going to this is an un, uncooked, untested, no mm-hmm. clue how this is theory. But I do think that like one of the reasons that well, possibly one of the reasons that we don't kind of go home that much it does happen 
But like, that's that's the bit that's fiction. So when she was mm-hmm. writing the book, she was writing it like in the evenings and like the little free time she had while she was working as a governess. So it's all vivid. And she's like drawing from, it's, it's not quite a diary, right? Because she's right. not writing a diary. She's writing the novel, but it's based on the stuff like as it's happening. Mm-hmm. And then her home life is not the home life in the book. And so she's not writing the novel about it. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So like all of the scenes, all of the governess scenes are very much kind of like jumping off the page because a lot of that, a lot of that stuff is true. And a lot of that stuff happened and it's just the names and places that have changed. But the home life stuff, she doesn't go home and find that no one needs her income and actually they're financially fine. Mm -hmm. And her mum, who is still alive, um it's really proud of her yeah and her dad well just it's just different and i know that um when it's almost like the opposite when jane austen was writing the watsons it was too close to home right Mm -hmm. that's one of the theories for why she didn't finish it and i just i wonder if it's almost like she didn't have that jumping off point with the home life stuff or even too if it's like it's there it's that wish fulfillment part but it's also just it's just that's a that's a pain point that's hard to write that's really Mm -hmm. hard to get into i mean not that she couldn't do it and not that she's not capable of writing because she does do it in the book yeah and it's great when she does i just feel like like joy saying like it could there could be more of it and Mm -hmm. it's just like why it's such an interesting choice to just be like and then i went home for the holidays and then i came back and now some more shit so one of the things uh, that did really stand out to me in this set of chapters, and I think you touched on it at the top of the show, is um, it's the way that Anne is writing about the animals. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot happening. There. She does a lot of things with animals as imagery. Um, yeah. She likens people to animals a lot. So she'll use mm-hmm. animals as a way of describing characters. Um she uses the characters' interactions with the animals to show their true nature. Uh, Matilda is described as an animal, like we said, and the Bloomfield children are described as wild, unbroken cults. And there will be examples of this in, but it's throughout the entire novel. Yeah. So just in this set. Um, I mean, Agnes as a character is shown from the get-go as someone who really loves animals. She really cares about them. And that's, you know from um, like the family pony that she wanted to retire with them when it was Mm -hmm. too old to work. And she's really gutted that they have to sell it when they run out of money. And then like the pet pigeons she leaves behind. It's not just the cat. It's not just Mm -hmm. like the obvious animals. It's like, it's all of them. And then when she's working with the Bloomfields, it's not always uh, Tom's like direct cruelty to the birds that's interesting. But I also think the way it's discussed and the way people justify their actions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's no accident that in an early chapter before the bird killing happens, uh, Agnes comforts herself with thoughts of her family and these words, they may crush, but they shall not subdue me. Tis of thee that I think, not of them. And then she has to kill the nestlings. And I, I don't think it's an accident that she crushes them because I think that Agnes is the bird hmm yeah I do too and so I think that choice of language is like so throughout the book I think that Anne Bronte is talking about how the wealthy treat all low creatures and so low creatures here are interchangeable as governesses as servants as a horse as, as women a poor too, person I think, yeah. as women um 
it is like it isn't and so like agnes is being crushed and but she can't be like they may crush but they shall not subdue me right and i just yeah i don't know i thought she's almost like preempting the stone moment Mm -hmm. with that and it's all it's set on its own it's really like you just see it on the page i like that you highlighted that too because i think it's very easy to sort of get sidetracked by that moment in that book people do talk about this moment quite a bit and they talk very specifically about the birds and the imagery but they don't talk about what it means and what they think Mm -hmm. Anne is trying to say and I do I am very much on the same page like I definitely do think that Anne is Anne is the birds yeah yeah and I think the other thing that's really important is that um it isn't just birds it's um insects and frogs and disgusting creatures and the ones that you don't want to look at and the ones that aren't pretty and the ones that Mm -hmm. are service creatures that's the point of her conversation with mrs bloomfield and it's all creatures Mm -hmm. should be treated well animals and people it's not like there isn't this kind of hierarchical value of how you should treat things based on their status right and she's saying it about animals but she is saying it about herself so yeah yeah i absolutely am on the same page to that it's interesting too because i you know i think when you talk about the bronte canon at large we always associate emily um most strongly with with animals and then Mm -hmm. also with nature um but it's just interesting that those things are very present in agnes gray and in tenant super present but we're just seeing them like pop up in a different way Mm-hmm. So I could see, like, you know, Anne and Emily having this discussion that we're having right yeah, now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They just, they present them differently within their writing, but they're really talking about the same thing, I think. And that's why I think Emily is the sibling that she didn't kill in the first chapter. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I'm glad that you mentioned like nature writing as well, because um, this book, Agnes Grey, uh, just has really good examples of just like straight up nature writing like Mm -hmm. i'm talking like a classic description of a landscape not like oh it's like you know this person was like a field or like Mm -hmm. just describing a field and she often uses um uh the natural surroundings to like reflect the mood I do really love the comparisons between like Anne and Charlotte's work and what they're both trying to do because I think in Agnes Grey those comparisons are completely unavoidable, right? So it's not just Tenet yeah. of Wildfell Hall that you're comparing it to. It's I don't think it's possible uh, to read Agnes Grey after reading Charlotte's work um, and not compare it and not sure. have that yeah. in your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely found myself thinking about Villette a lot, which I thought was weird because I know that Jane Eyre is the more obvious comparison, but just I couldn't get Villette out of my head when I was reading Agnes Grey. I think the Villette comparison is apt. Um, I think, you know, I'm, I'm just throwing this out there. I'm probably wrong, but I do think that it gets compared to Jane Eyre more often because Jane Eyre is, you know, more popular and also because of the timing of mm-hmm. when those books were published. Um, so like Jane Eyre was published first and then it was a success. And then Agnes Grey comes out and everyone's like, hey, what is this? <laughs> What well, is I'm glad this you pale said that because comparison, yeah. Technically, Anne was reading Agnes Grey to Charlotte. Charlotte then started writing Jane Eyre. Then they right. both sent their books off to publish, and Jane Eyre came out first, and Agnes Grey was second. Correct. But Charlotte went to Manchester, having heard Agnes Grey, and mm-hmm. came back and was like, "Here is 
this book that I've written, which is about a governess who goes off and directly addresses the reader. And I've got a real beef about it. I have a lot of thoughts and feelings on that, um, which we can really get into in an episode. But um, I, yeah, I think that the comparison to Valette is a lot more natural because Valette portrays a much more realistic work environment, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Think about Jane yeah. Eyre is like Jane Eyre is like Beauty and the Beast. It's a it's a fantasy, it's right? A fairy tale. Yeah. Um, but there is you know this real work environment in Valette, and there's also the same sense of loneliness and mm-hmm. longing for home in Valette, which is very similar to Agnes Grey. So, um, this quote actually, and I'm sorry guys, I didn't put down the which chapter it's in, but this quote from Agnes Grey really does actually remind me of Valette. So, um, she says. In returning to the lodge, I felt very happy and thanked God that I had some that I had something to think about, something to dwell on as a relief from the weary, monotony and lonely drudgery of my present life. For I was lonely, never from month to month, from year to year, except <clears throat> from year to year, except during my brief intervals of rest at home, did I see one creature to whom I could open my heart or freely speak my thoughts with any hope of sympathy or even comprehension. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think there's the same just isolated sense of self in both books. So I think that's a great comparison. And I know that um, on Facebook, Joy said that the relationship between Agnes and Rosalie reminded her of the dynamic between Lucy Snow and Geneva. Mm-hmm. And so we get a lot more of Rosalie and Agnes's relationship, but it's almost that like, you know what? I like her in spite of the fact that she's terrible. I don't know what it is, but I do like her. That's yeah. like the thing, right? But um, I was also mm-hmm. really reminded of uh, Cynthia, Wives yeah. and Daughters. I yes. thought about Wives and Daughters a lot while I was reading it too. So. I actually was going to bring up Wives and Daughters next week. Cool. But yes, that is on oh, my... My list of um, relationships that I'd like to Let's talk about. Let's just compare Agnes Grey to other books that we've read that are longer <laughs> and have more pockets. Yes, for sure. Um, one thing that I was uh, curious about, sort of going back to your point about the nursery, mm-hmm. was, um, and I kind of threw this out to Dr. Amber, and I was just like, okay, is it standard for governesses to also like cover nursemaid duties? So thinking back to that moment in chapter two, when Mrs. Bloomfield informs Agnes that she will be moving Marianne's cot into her bedroom and that she will also be responsible for washing and dressing in addition to all of the teaching as well. So she, she really has no free moments in her schedule, right? It's just a full time job. They still employ a nursemaid as well. Yes. And I know that because she she gets sacked and there's a discussion about it. So I'm like, what's she doing all this time? (laughs) Who's she looking after? What's going on? And sort of again, going back to like some some of the stuff that I was mentioning at the top of the show, like I feel like it's such a relatable moment. And because I feel like every job I've got into, like it has not been as advertised. Mm -hmm. And like I've been you know, just every publishing or nonprofit gig that I've ever had has like piled on all of these extra jobs on my first day. Just like, hey, Lauren, we know we hired you to work with the sales team, but you know, you're also going to have to take on some sensitivity reading, author relations, marketing, blah, 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 blah. Thanks for being a team player, which is something I've heard so many times from my boss. 
and um, just those little work things in Agnes Gray, I've been like just underlining. So now we've just taken a sidebar where Hannah personally related to that point, but it was way too detailed to go on the show. So Too hot to handle. <laughs> DM me if you want it. No, actually, don't do that. Um, <laughs> so last of all, I, I would like to give comment of the week to Alison VH, uh, who was just sending out some love to Mama Gray. She said that I love the scene where Anne is looking for a job for the second time and her mum is just rejecting all of them. And one of the things she tells Anne is not to accept less less than she's worth and to set her own terms and expectations. And I just love that. More than 150 years later, women are still struggling with that. We are. And Hannah, are you struggling with that? We are. Very much so. <laughs> so if you only take one thing away from this series... Take that away from it, honestly. So um, that is a wrap for chapters one through eight. Thanks again to Adele Hay for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts on Agnes Gray and Anne. Next week, we are going to be discussing chapters nine through 16. um, And it's not too late to join that read along. Y'all can get in there and start talking. Again, a very quick read. So jump on oh, in if you're interested. And for those of you listening in the future, I hope you're enjoying it. <laughs> for those of you who really missed it and are listening yeah. to this in five years time, hello. <laughs> what is Earth like in five years? <laughs> and this weekend, August 8th, 2020, Dr. Amber will be chatting with us about Agnes Gray and women's work. Now, if you want to join that Zoom call, you're going to have to email us or find us on Facebook for that link. And Hannah, where where would the fine people do that? You can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnets at dawn at gmail.com and you can join our Facebook group by searching Bonnets at Dawn. And I will say, because it's a read-along season, it's really worth joining if you're on Facebook and you want to join in, just because that is where most of the discussion is happening. Mm-hmm. And Lauren and I are there. And there's loads of listener comments. We had 115 comments on this set of chapters alone. It's just really lively and you'll, you'll learn a lot of stuff.